0: Before we get started, we want to let you know that AHR Interview is available to stream and subscribe to on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. To find us, use the search term American Historical Association. Welcome to AHR Interview, a production of the American Historical Review. I'm Daniel Storey. In the fall of 2018, Wheaton College historian Catherine Tomasek made a visit to Indiana University, Bloomington, as a guest of IU's Institute for Digital Arts and Humanities. I had the opportunity to sit down with her in front of a live audience to discuss historians and digital scholarship. What follows is that conversation. Welcome to a special live recording of AHR Interview here on the Bloomington campus of Indiana University. Uh, AHR Interview is a podcast produced by the American Historical Review. I'm Daniel Storey, uh, the producer and sometimes interviewer for the podcast. And today's session is co-sponsored by IU's Institute for Digital Arts and Humanities and the U.S. History Workshop. We're delighted to have as our guest today historian Catherine Tomasek, who is here to discuss the relationship between uh, the discipline of history and the world of digital scholarship. Tomasek is professor of history at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts where she teaches 19th century U.S. history, women's history, and digital history, and is a founding director of the Wheaton College Digital History Project. She has written extensively on both women's history and digital history and methodology, and served as a member of the American Historical Association's Ad Hoc Committee on the Professional Evaluation of Digital Publications by historians. Her current work focuses on um, TEI and specifically a collaborative project that she's involved in to TEI encode historical financial records. Mm-hmm. So Catherine Thomasek, welcome to Bloomington and welcome to AHR Interview. Thanks. So I wanted to talk with you today really about three main areas mm-hmm. in the time that we have. Um, the f- I, w- I would have liked to work our way toward a kind of bigger question about where you see, wh- wh- in your view, where we're at um, mm-hmm. as a discipline in terms of our engagement with historical scholarship or digital scholarship that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd also like to talk about your teaching. But I wanted to begin um, in, with your research and specifically the project that you're currently working on mm-hmm. on uh, coding historical financial records. So. Could you begin by talking a bit about what that project entails in terms of the coding process as well as the collaborations that it spawned Mm -hmm. and and the the kind of payoffs that you ultimately envision?
1: Sure, sure, I'm happy to talk about that. So um, we have been doing um, digital scholarly editions of primary sources that come from the um, the college where I teach it was founded in 1834 as a female seminary, and it became a college in 1911. And um, we actually have a nice collection of Wheaton family papers, um, so papers from the family that founded the college. Um, I actually had someone ask me once, well, "How is this? How is the what you have in the Wheaton papers of interest to anybody besides?" you know, alums and the Wheaton community. And, you know, my response actually was kind of, well, you know, why do we know about the Sedgwick family? (laughs) (laughs) And we know because there's an archive. Um, And so, you know, what gets archived is is fairly random and the Wheaton archive is fairly random. And I think they're interesting um, as a family that founded um, an institution for the education of women uh, for the higher education of women mm-hmm. in the 1830s, which was a moment when um, that kind of thing was happening, um, and particularly, I think the um, accounting records are interesting because um, the the um, the son of the family, uh, the Wheaton family, uh, was a businessman and. Uh, he inherited most of his wealth from his dad, right? And most of that wealth was in the form of land. Um, but Laban Maury Wheaton had to you know, have some sort of work that he did. Um, he trained as a lawyer, but he wasn't as interested in the law as his father was. His father became a judge. Um, which is how he found out about land that was available that he could buy. Never mind. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But Laban Mori Wheaton was, um, you know, the postmaster of the town of Norton for a while. He was, um, he became involved in a lot of different business activities. And one of the things that he did was he ran a store in the town and he kept a a journal, a day book um, that recorded the transactions, the daily transactions. instances in which people came into the store and bought something. Um, Not every day, but um, so it was also his office, his business office. Um, He kept a ledger, um, which uh, was a way to help him keep track of the people to whom he was extending credit. And he also kept cash books um, of monies received and monies expended. And this is all, um, these are all parts of the standard system of double entry accounting that um, was in use in. The second quarter of the 19th century, which is when his was his uh, business practice flourished. So um, we did some some text encoding with some other um, easier, more sort of literary kinds of documents that were in the uh, in the collection. We have some pocket diaries, we have a travel journal, that sort of thing, and um, and when we ran out of the easy stuff, um, the archivist. Uh, the college archivist and I sort of looked at each other and said, oh, there are these these cool accounting kinds of records. And um, so we started transcribing them, working with students, um, trying to figure out how we would do the markup using the text encoding initiative. And that, uh, that's sort of where it all came from. Sure. Is that the question you asked me? Yes,
0: it <laughs> certainly is. Um, could you, for the benefit of some of our listeners who hmm. May be a little fuzzy on what TEI is. Sure. Can you describe a little bit about, uh, describe a little bit of what TEI is as well as the sort of decisions you had to make in terms mm-hmm. of applying it to something like accounting records?
1: Sure, absolutely. So TEI stands for Text Encoding Initiative. And um, the TEI is an international consortium of colleges and universities, libraries, scholars, technical experts, who started off um, in the 90s um, focusing on how to turn printed materials, especially books, into data that computers could read at a distance. Um, as a way to look for patterns that might help with questions like author attribution, that kind of thing. So it's been around for a long time. Um, If I look at the about page of the TEI, which is at TEIC.org, TEI, I'm sorry, dash C.org, the sentence that I read is, Oh, the Chief Deliberable is a, a set of guidelines that specify encoding met- methods for machine-readable texts. Um, and this website, we say on the website, is um, text chiefly in the humanities, social sciences and linguistics. And then it's dated. Um, Since 1994, the TEI guidelines have been widely used by libraries, museums, publishers, and individual scholars to present texts for online research, teaching, and preservation. We actually now have a tool for publishing um, TEI encoded text. It's called TAPAS, the TEI Archiving Preservation and Access Service. But you know, it has to have a food name because digital humanities people really like their food. And so they were really pleased to come up with that acronym. And I'll say more about acronyms because I'm like really bad at coming up with them and some people are really good at it. Um, But um, so the TEI has been around for a long time. Uh, We just won a 30th anniversary award in 2016 I think the TEI consortium was awarded the Antonio Zempoli Prize at the DH conference in Montreal to recognize the importance of its contribution to the advancement of digital humanities and its long-term contribution to the advancement of humanities research and what you do with TEI is you take a text and first you um, well it has to have a TEI header and I'm not going to talk about the TEI header because yeah, I don't even have pictures to show you. <laughs> um, but um, the first thing that you do is you mark the text up for structure, right? And so you put in all the paragraph breaks and all the chapter breaks and all of those kinds of things. And then, um, and then you can mark up other things. So if you're doing correspondence, for example, um, you can mark up uh, dates. Um, you can also mark up names. Um, and in fact, you can make uh, uh, an associated list of names to, so that you can have a prosopography of all the people who are mentioned, whether they're fictional characters or actual humans, um, that are referenced in whatever the corpus is that you're working on, whether it's a, a single text or, um, or something larger. Um, the guidelines were initially intended for transcription and markup of printed materials but um, they've been extended a number of times um, and they now include chapters on transcriptions of speech um, as well as on dictionaries manuscript description representation of primary sources um, including correspondence and there's actually a table uh, excuse me a chapter also on tables formula graphics and notated music And the tables are important for me for marking up um, accounting records because um, TEI actually doesn't do spreadsheets, but you can put tabular data into TEI and sort of mark um, the information in ways that makes it possible to extract a spreadsheet from it. You can also transcribe into a spreadsheet and um, have that transformed into TEI, if that's something that that you want.
0: Mm. So you can sort of capture the columns and rows aspect of the account books.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. TEI is a tree, and trees don't make relational databases, which is what a spreadsheet is. And I've actually had people ask me at conferences, well, why don't you just use a spreadsheet? And the answer is because I'm not interested only in the numerical information. The numerical information is interesting and it's important, but I'm also interested in other bits of information, like dates, like people, like um, places, like organizations, like um, the kinds of commodities uh, that are being exchanged. So, and, and you can mark all of that kind of stuff up with TEI elements.
0: Right, and that sort of gets at the next question really mm-hmm. is what do you see as the major payoffs for historians <laughs> who um, maybe have in the past looked at these financial records <laughs> in great detail, but, but in a particular way, mm-hmm. what is it that TEI and this kind of encoding will add? What kind of new questions can you answer? And particularly if, the work that you're doing really gets deployed at scale.
1: Ah, yeah.
0: Which is another kind of uh, question. Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. Um, okay, so there was a moment when I was beginning to talk about this stuff and I would, I, would, um, I would describe the markup and all of those sorts of things. And I would say, and if we can get lots of people to, to do this, we can rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not so much, but um, and a, a, one of my colleagues um, who was sort of developing the same kinds of ideas that we were developing at the same time, but we weren't in touch, um, he's in Europe and he has called the, the work that we do um, a Luftschluss, which means a, an air castle, right? So there's pie in the sky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a self-deprecating joke, but bef- <laughs> but the idea is that if you make the data, okay, so if you take the information that's in sources and you turn them into data that um, operate according to um, an accepted set of guidelines. I always want to say standard, but the TEI does not want to make a standard, it wants to make guidelines, so, um, and there's a great XKCD comic about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, if if you mark these things up into um, using using the system that is um, well accepted internationally and deployed, um, I hate that word. I shouldn't use that word, um, but used um, in a lot of different places. Um, you, it's it's possible to um, create a. Big, flexible data set that, if we wanted to, we could, or if we if we got enough people interested, we would be able to um, learn about things like. Um, what kinds of commodities were traded in Europe, for example, between the medieval period and the early, uh, early modern period? And um, did the references to them change? Um, were, they, uh, were they traded both in Central Europe and in the West? Um, you know, lots of kinds of questions that one could ask perhaps may using um, sort of traditional economic history data sets, but not so much um there's oh now i'm not going to be able to remember his name um there's Mm -hmm. an economic historian that my colleagues in um, regensburg um, are very interested in someone who got economic historians interested in sort of testing the quality of existing um, social science history data sets for the kinds of questions that you could ask and one of the things that um, he points out is that you know it's really, Richard Allen is his name, mm. yay. Um, it's hard to compare uh, economic exchanges across regions because, you know, in one place um, the grain that's being traded is rye, and in another place it's barley, and in another place it's um, wheat. And what is wheat anyway? Is it corn? Um, like mm. they say in England, you know, that kind of thing. So there are those kinds of issues that have made it difficult to do um, cross-regional comparisons. But my colleague um, in Graz, Georg Vogler, has actually done some work with um, that, ha- that shows that it is possible if you use a, a common kind of coding um, mechanism, then you can make these kinds of comparisons, mm. which is a kind of cool thing.
0: Yeah, very cool. I think. Uh, so the other thing yeah. that you do with with all mm-hmm. all of this uh, stuff in TEI in particular mm-hmm. is use it in your classroom with undergraduate students, right? Yeah, with under- and, and in fact, that there's a strong connection between the teaching aspect and the research aspect for you with this, right? So mm-hmm. would you s- say just a few words about how you've seen this work in that setting, sure. and what sort of benefits uh, your your students have? Sure. Have gained? Yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. So in two thousand four, I and my colleagues in both library and information services and in the archives um, at Wheaton got to got an opportunity to learn TEI from um, from real experts in the field. Um, Julia Flanders, who leads the Women Writers Project that's now at Northeastern University, um, was the main instructor in that uh, in that workshop. And um, the the whole point of the workshop was to Um, teach undergraduate um, instructors, people who teach undergraduates in history or English or the languages, um, TEI, so that they could bring it into the classroom and and use it with their students. And um, into, I guess it was 2004, in the fall of 2004, um, we started with a a really great, uh, I thought it was really great, the students actually thought it was really great too, scaffolded assignment in which we asked the students to t- first transcribe um, and then mark up a, um, a journal that was kept by the daughter of a baptist minister in the period following the u.s civil war and um, so you know first we divided the journal into equal pieces and we asked individual students to do some transcription and then we gave the students the the whole transcription and um, put them into groups to, um, to mark up the, the text for the document for um, interpretation. And basically, I picked three, three, three four themes. Um, this is a US Women's History class, right? And so the themes were family, religion, um, death and mourning, because there's a death, right, um, and, uh, and religion. Right. And so, you know, they each group produced their own um, marked up version for interpretation of of the uh, topic that they've been given. And um, the students, um, it was it was a really great example for them, I think, of the value of active learning. Um, of the, the value of really getting a chance to dig deep into something that they had no experience with. They'd never worked with an archival document before. Um, and really sort of getting to know this young woman who was very interesting. You know, she starts off talking about boys and how there aren't a lot of guys around because, well, she doesn't say because of the war, but I know because of the war. And, um, and then, you know, she sort of uh, winds up telling the story Not because she intended to when she started this diary on her, or this journal on her birthday, um, but her father got ill. And so she winds up telling the story of her father's final illness and moving the family back to New England. And um, oh, because they were from Maine. And at at the time she started the journal, they lived in Upper Alton, Illinois, where he was teaching theology at a seminary. Um, And so the students, you know, like really came to care about this this young woman. They were very disappointed, um, by the way, when the diary just uh, the journal just ended, right? Because <laughs> that's what historical documents do, and they wanted to know what happened to her. Mm. Um, but I think one thing that students can get um, out of this kind of work is the um, an understanding of the value of close reading. Mm, yeah. One thing I really want them to get is how important it is to spend time with your documents um, because our students have to write a 20-page capstone based on original research, right? And, um, and impressing upon them the fact that you have to be looking at this stuff for a long time and you can't just do this you know, at, starting at midnight before the day it's due is kind of an important thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I want to ask you now Mm -hmm. to take a step back, draw Mm -hmm. draw on uh, the breadth of experience you've had in research and teaching Mm -hmm. as well as you know working on the the AHA project thinking about digital scholarly Mm -hmm. publishing and um, if you don't mind reflect a little bit on uh, the state of things. Where do you see the discipline of history now where is it Where have we gotten to in terms of our, our engagement with relationship with digital? scholarship and where would you like to see us go in the near term and even in the longer term yeah
1: i love that question thank you for asking me that question so yeah i was on the committee that wrote the aha's guidelines for the professional Mm -hmm. professional evaluation of digital scholarship by historians (laughs) Um, what's the acronym for that i have no idea Um, and the first thing that comes to mind for me so that was like 2013 2014 i think that we were working on that and the first thing that comes to mind when you ask a question like that um is uh, a survey of historians or uh, the results from a survey of historians in the United States that Rob Townsend published in 2010. Um, he asked a lot of questions about sort of historians' relationships to digital tools. And he found out, and this was eight years ago, right? Um, he found out that most historians use the kinds of tools that everybody uses, like email, right? Um, some reported using digital tools in their research. Um, And very few reported using digital tools in their classrooms. Um, That was eight years ago, and I think things are really different. Um, It's probably time to repeat the study and do some comparison. Um, My basic feeling to date is that the profession has been slow to adopt digital tools. Um, I think there was frustration in the room on the part of, when we were working on the guidelines on the part of people who had been doing this kind of work since the 90s and um, sort of hadn't seen it taken up in the, in the way that they might have hoped. Mm. Um, I think this is certainly changing as um, a new generation comes into the field, but it is my sense that the date of the AHA guidelines is kind of late. Um, if you take into account the date of the MLA guidelines, I think they did that about 10 years earlier than we did but but again i think things are changing so for instance laura putnam um, Mm -hmm. is doing some really interesting work and say making some really interesting points Um, i think about um, a presentation that she made at the aha in 2017 um, and she was talking about historians and and digital sources and um, she said something about how we should be the experts on um, the the quality of sources that um, that we and our students go and find online um, and mm. use mm. for historical research. I thought that was a really great point. Um, I also think about uh, this article that Seth Denbo published, like maybe last week, right, mm-hmm. in Perspectives about academic presses and electronic publishing and some things that are that are going on there. And the third example that mm-hmm. I think is really terrific is the um, the work that Karen Wolf um, and her colleagues are doing at the Amahandro in- Institute, um, the Amahandro Institute for Early American History and Culture. I think is the right name. I didn't yeah. Google it, um, <laughs> but so they're doing they, they've. They're working on a documentary project, which is the, the, excuse me, the Georgian Papers. Um, They also have become the home for Liz Covert's podcast, Ben Franklin's World, um, which is some really terrific stuff. Um, And they're also the home for Joe Edelman's blog, um, The Junto, I think that's how we say it for the early period. Um, Anyway, so that's, um, you know, their focus is the early period um, for the United States, but there is some, There's movement, Mm -hmm. and it makes me very happy to Mm -hmm. see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Catherine, thank you very much for these insights. It's my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks again for speaking with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That was Catherine Tomasek discussing historians and digital scholarship. She visited Indiana University in the fall of 2018 as a guest of IU's Institute for Digital Arts and Humanities. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Find us with the search term American Historical Association. I'm Daniel Storey, and this is AHR Interview. Thanks for listening.